not a TV studio. Josh, turn these lights out. It's a fucking rock concert. Ready to stand up. Ah! Okay. And, uh... I don't know what to say. It has been a very long time since I have done an episode of the Jake Henderson Project. Easily over a year, and it might even be two years since I've done my last episode. Um, You know, life just came about, and I put it down, and a bunch of people would ask me, Jake, why are you no longer doing this? And it turns out I just didn't want to. Um... But that has changed today, at least. Or should I say, it has changed for this episode. Because what I want this episode to be today, and what I want to discuss, and what I feel like I need to get off of my chest, is my journey to Peru to drink the sacred medicine of ayahuasca. And that sounds really silly and mumbo-jumbo-y, right? The sacred medicine of ayahuasca. Um, but I truly, truly do believe that it is a medicine and it has taken me probably two years to decompress from that situation and be able to speak about it intelligently, uh, and in a bipartisan fashion where I'm not wrapped up in the kind of magical world, uh, that is the mysticism behind ayahuasca. And, and like I said, what I want to do is I want to share that journey with you today because it might be a topic that you're not familiar with or that you're interested in or that you've heard about but don't really know anything about. Um, So I'm just going to kind of walk you through my journey and tell you some fun stories along the way. But the goal here is just to have a good time. And honestly, this is almost like a therapy session uh, for me to finally get this out in the public. Why haven't I talked about ayahuasca up until this point, uh, especially in like a podcast or a public facing setting? That is because um, it's very personal. I think maybe that's a good place to start is ayahuasca is very personal. And I'll tell you what ayahuasca is in a brief message here, but uh, everybody does it for their own reasons. Uh, Everybody makes the journey for their own reasons. Some people don't even go all the way to Peru or Colombia or some of these Amazonian countries uh, to do it, and that's okay. But uh, the point here is that uh, taking, ingesting, um, participating in ayahuasca ceremonies is a highly, highly personable experience. uh, And different people do it for different reasons. And I'll get into mine shortly. But Um, You may be sitting here like, Jake, cool, welcome back, you idiot. What the fuck is ayahuasca? Uh, That's the first swear I've gotten on this podcast, and and there'll be more to come, but uh, what the fuck is ayahuasca, right? And I'm going to do this to the best of my ability without actually looking on a website that I do have pulled up to kind of get more more exact, Um, but I'll give you my bro science version of ayahuasca. Um, They don't really know the origins of ayahuasca. They have a general idea, but they don't know uh, how these Amazonian shamans or medicine men or medicine people in 2020 culture came up with this exact collaboration of vine and leaves to create a psychedelic medicine. Some would argue the most psychedelic of all psychedelic medicines, um, and that I can probably attest is, is accurate as well. But the origins are, are, are quite unknown. Um, I'm not sure of all the theories behind everything, but here, here, here's the ideas. Ayahuasca is primarily a mix between two items. The first is actually the ayahuasca vine, right? The name ayahuasca comes from the vine itself. Um, 
Maybe I can pull up a picture of an ayahuasca vine here. Ayahuasca vine. I'll pull it up for you. Images. I will share it on. I'm also doing a video as well. So if you can see here, the ayahuasca vine, here's an exact look at what the ayahuasca vine actually looks like. Uh, it very much looks like a vine, and I'm not going to spend too much time on that, but that is where the name actually comes from. The name does not come from the brew itself, uh, although that is kind of just what has happened, uh, is you attribute uh, the term ayahuasca to the brew instead of the vine that it actually comes from. So let me cancel that window back and go back here. Okay, so ayahuasca is a mix or collaboration, if you will, between the vine uh, and leaves that contain DMT. There's more than one leaf that contains DMT, although the chacruna leaf is most popular. So where the mythology comes from, or where the question comes from, I should say, is how the hell did these Amazonian people figure to mix the ayahuasca vine and the chacruna leaves together, right? And why is it important that those two things are together? Well, uh, DMT is held in the chacruna leaf, right? Part two of the ayahuasca brew. If you were to eat a shitload of chacruna leaves, nothing would happen. I mean, maybe you might get sick from just eating a bunch of leaves, um, but you will not have any psychedelic experiences. And that is because when you ingest DMT orally, something happens within our gut that does not allow us to process that and get messed up or have psychedelic experiences from just eating it. So what the curious part is, is that these ancient Amazonians figured out that if you put the ayahuasca vine with the uh, chacruna leaves or DMT in a mixture, the ayahuasca vine actually contains an MAO, MOA, MAO inhibitor. I think it's an MOA inhibitor. Uh, and what that actually means is it inhibits a reaction in your gut that destroys the DMT. So when you mix these two together, the inhibitor in the ayahuasca vine allows your body to actually process that DMT, which sends you off into the moon, right? So you cannot uh, get high off of DMT orally without some form of MAO inhibitor. Now, how they figured out that this specific vine and this specific leaf will give you that kind of rocket ship experience, uh, I don't know. A lot of people theorize. A lot of people say that they've been dieting on plants and the plants told them what to do. That's not what this is all about. Uh, the point is ayahuasca is a combination between the ayahuasca vine and any leaf that contains DMT, most commonly chacruna, because the, uh, the vine allows you to actually ingest and experience the DMT that is trapped in these leaves. Um, so that is what ayahuasca is. Now, a lot of the times in ancient culture, ancient Amazonian culture, the ayahuasca has been used um, to guide them through the forest, to help uh, the shamans and medicine people diagnose what's wrong with individuals uh, in their tribe, if you will. It really has been a tool historically for uh, the shamans of the group uh, to get answers from the gods or from an alternate universe to guide them in their day-to-day -day life. Now, here's an interesting thing. White people, as we do, we discovered uh, what these ancient Amazonians have been doing, and even current Amazonian tribes. I should stop saying ancient because it's still happening. Uh, but we discovered that, and we started having our own ayahuasca, ayahuasca experiences, and we now use it for a variety of things. 
So when we're talking, uh, everybody has their own personal reason for doing ayahuasca or going into the jungle and drinking this DMT brew. Uh, it is primarily soul-searching, traumatic experience ending, uh, mind-expanding reasons, right? It is not so much hey, my mother is sick, I'm going to drink this ayahuasca to figure out what the best um, combination of medicine or chemotherapy or whatever, 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 right? Which is kind of how shamans in the past have done it. And of course, there's other reasons too. But white people, and I guess people of all colors, but white people is kind of the funny thing to say right now is we've taken that and we said, hey, how do I uh, experience personal growth from this? How do I end some some traumatic memories that I have? How do I expand my field of view to kind of be a better person, right? Those are all potential reasons that people would go uh, and drink ayahuasca. Um, but you can have a number of other reasons as well. So let's get into the juicy part, which is why the hell did I, Jake Henderson, go uh, all the way to Peru to drink ayahuasca in the middle of the Amazonian rainforest. And to tell you the truth, well, I guess I will tell you the truth. Um, I had been having trouble getting over a breakup, not getting over the person individually, but I think it really, really damaged my ego. So one day I was sitting at work and um, I had known about ayahuasca I had heard about it, I had heard the stories, and it had never captivated me, it never sounded like something that I wanted to do, um, and we'll get into why one person would not want to do it, uh, kind of, here's a little foreshadowing or a clue, it is a fucking um, exhausting experience for multiple reasons, which we'll get into, but I knew about it, um, I understood what ayahuasca was, I understood what it did, I understood the benefits, and I had never been interested in ayahuasca before. One day I'm sitting at work. I can picture it now. I'm on uh, floor 15 of my building. I was in sales, freight sales. Uh, and this idea came to me. It said, Jake, it is time to go to the Amazonian jungle, the jungles of Peru, and to drink ayahuasca in a legitimate setting. And that was weird because I had not been thinking about ayahuasca for a very, very long time. And it, like I said, it never interests me. But this is what they say happens. They say it calls you when you least expect it or you need it the most. Um, and I chalked it up to that. So I was sitting there and said, Jake, you need to go do ayahuasca. And my fingers went to my mouse. My fingers went to my keyboard. And I started Googling ayahuasca retreats uh, in the Amazonian jungle. Two days later, I had booked an experience uh, to fly to Peru, to fly to Iquitos, Peru, at the Amazon Basin, to get picked up in an SUV driven two hours into the jungle uh, where I would stay for a week and participate in three ayahuasca ceremonies. It happened like that quickly. And I guess reading from other people's experience, that's the kind of thing that happens uh, to a lot of individuals as well. It calls you, you make the decision, and you go execute. Now, I don't know if like if you had never heard about ayahuasca and you're listening to this podcast now and then two days later you're booking it. I don't know if that's how it works or if you have to have some baseline knowledge. But anyway, that was my experience in the whole thing. Uh, I originally, like I was struggling with this breakup, like I said, but I had booked this trip in September, right? This kind of vision, this idea to go do ayahuasca came to me in September and I didn't book the trip to leave until February. 
Um, I think that I just wanted to make sure I had enough time to prepare and get all my ducks in a row with work and make sure that I could take off 14 days to disappear to Peru. Um, I think that was the scenario that happened. Uh, but maybe there was also just a little bit of fear or financial implications of like, hey, I want to save up a little bit. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, I decided to go five months after the fact, but I had originally booked it within two days of getting this experience, put a deposit down, uh, bought my flights, yada, yada, yada. Uh, what ended up happening is by the time that February rolled around, I had gotten over that breakup, right? Time heals all wounds as long as you're being a productive member of society and keeping yourself healthy, uh, which was fine. So it became time to leave for Peru. Um, and I was, uh, searching for a new reason to go do this thing and almost to a point of like, oh my God, should I still go do this thing? Because I'm not struggling with the original thing that encouraged me to book it. Um, I feel a little bit weird going there and um, just participating in this if I don't have a clearly defined thing that I'm looking to tackle. And I think that's a really naive, in hindsight, I think that's a really naive way to think about taking ayahuasca. That you know what you need more than your uh, inner self or your subconscious knows what you mean. Again, a little bit mumbo jumbo, but the point here is like, It'll fucking tell you what you need. So uh, don't think that you're going there to achieve one thing because chances are you're going to actually end up in this situation and you'll be tackling a whole shitload of different issues uh, when you actually ingest the ayahuasca. Uh, so anyway, the time came and I went. But this is a good opportunity to talk about this concept of dieta in ayahuasca. Uh, the dieta or the ayahuasca diet, if you will... Uh, is very, very strict. And I'm going to put a disclaimer here that when I was in Peru and we were discussing the dieta, which I'll tell you about very, very shortly, a lot of the shamans had this idea of, uh, once again, Westerners have taken it to the extreme and lost kind of like the idea of what a dieta it really is and when you do a dieta. Um, so keep that in mind and I'll kind of point that out as we go here. But basically, the ayahuasca diet uh, is set to prepare you for the strenuous, um, oftentimes horrible experience that goes along with drinking ayahuasca. The brew itself is dark, it's syrupy, it's thick. Uh, I'll get into the taste a little bit later on, but your body basically rejects it. Your body, body basically will keep it down long enough sometimes, uh, for you to ingest that DMT and process that DMT uh, and get blasted off. But after a while, your body is going to start to reject the brew that you put into your body, um, and you'll be puking and vomiting and shitting and have diarrhea and stomach cramps and hot sweats and all of this good stuff that comes along with it. Not all the time, but most of the time, that's what you experience. Uh, so the dieta is set to really give you... Uh, a good foundation or a clean foundation, if I will. So when you do ingest this stuff, you're not puking up McDonald's cheeseburgers and Arby's cheddar beef sandwiches and the really disgusting Western diet that oftentimes uh, we in, indulge in, uh, myself specifically. Um, so the ayahuasca diet is very much no salt, I'm actually going to look it up. Why don't I look it up for you? But it's basically no salt, no sugar, no spicy foods, no heavy seasonings, uh, 
no meat products other than maybe chicken and different sources will tell you different things no chocolate uh no coffee a bunch of this stuff ayahuasca i'm gonna look it up for all of us right now so i don't really butcher it okay this is from an ayahuasca retreat um oh my god i forgot all about the no sex thing okay no salt no sugar no dairy no red meat fuck no spicy food, no alcohol, no problem here, but for a lot of people that struggles, especially the young lady that I went with, uh, and no sex, which is difficult for everybody, um, as long as you're, you're doing it regularly, which I encourage. But uh, it's basically no, nothing that makes food taste good or enjoyable or that makes you want to come back for more. So for the first two weeks, or not for the first two weeks, for the two weeks prior to actually leaving the trip, I initiated my ayahuasca diet which was very much no salt, no sugar, no dairy, no red meat, no spicy food, uh, no alcohol, no sex. No sex includes masturbation. Uh, I'll be honest, I failed there. I also failed at the no sex thing. Um, and I'll, I'll get into, hey, that's okay. The point here with the ayahuasca diet is it's set to prepare your body for the strenuous activity of actually drinking ayahuasca. Um, that's the first part. The second part with the ayahuasca diet, which I honestly think is just as important or more important is that it's sacrifice. It makes you sacrifice a little bit to go to the jungle and to drink this gift from wherever because I truly, truly believe that ayahuasca is a gift. Uh, It allows us to work through some really interesting uh, things within ourselves and within our environment. Um, And if you're going to do that, you better show it some respect or else it will literally kick you in the ass it will it will beat you up and it will make your ceremonies a living nightmare i mean it will send you to hell if you don't respect it and even if you do respect it ayahuasca will still send you to hell sometimes to teach you a lesson uh so the ayahuasca diet i should say the pre-ayahuasca diet because there's a different diet that you actually start when you arrive at the facility, which I'll get into. But the pre-ayahuasca diet is to clean your body, uh, kind of make it as as empty and as, um, I guess, clean as possible to when you actually ingest this stuff. And then it's also to teach you a little bit of discipline and a little bit of respect. Hey, if you're going to go do this thing, you need to make sure uh, that you're doing it in the right mentality and that you've made some sacrifices to go out and do it. Or else, like I said, it's going to kick your ass. So two weeks before I left, I'm going to take a sip of my coffee here, hold on. Two weeks before I left, I started the ayahuasca diet, and I followed it pretty closely. I didn't follow it exactly. Um, I was basically eating a lot of sweet potatoes with minimal seasoning. I would salt them because I want a little bit of you know flavor in my life. I'd salt my sweet potatoes. It was a lot of like baked chicken. And I put that in like whole grain wraps. And that's basically what I ate for the entire two weeks. Like I said, uh, I didn't really follow the, the, the sex uh, detox as much as possible. The reason for the sex detox is to go into the ceremony without emotional attachment, right? Like if you have a partner or a boyfriend or girlfriend or you're just dating, uh, a lot of times those sexual encounters, whether it's first, second, third, tenth time, uh, they leave a mark on our person, right? So you go... Uh, into your ayahuasca ceremony, maybe thinking about somebody, distracted by somebody, thinking about a past sexual experience. Again, this is kind of hyper-focused on it. But that's the general idea is that like go in with a clean slate, clean body, clean mind, clean attitude, 
clean karma, whatever it may be, like detox, 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 and then you can go in there, uh, you'll learn some lessons, and then you can reintegrate after that. That's kind of the, the theory of the process. So uh, my suggestion to anybody that is actually going to go take ayahuasca and is looking at the diet beforehand, uh, it would be do your best. Don't obsess over it. Don't think that you have to follow it exactly. Uh, us in the West have uh, hyper-sensationalized the importance of it because when I got there, uh, the shamans very much said, this ayahuasca diet shit is just crazy. Like if you want to have sex uh, before you come in and do like a, a ceremony, like why wouldn't you be able to do that? Like stop beating yourselves up, stop going crazy over it. In fact, a lot of the restaurants in Iquitos, uh, the city kind of where it's like ground zero for ayahuasca trips. There's a bunch of retreats around Iquitos, Peru. Um, there's a bunch of restaurants that specialize in this ayahuasca diet for Westerners, which is basically uh, the same food that they offer just with no seasoning at like triple the price. So it's they, they've taken advantage of it as well. And it's just a really weird kind of marketing thing that Westerners have created. So keep that in mind. If you are going to be doing ayahuasca, like follow to the best of your ability, eat clean, be respectful, make some sacrifices in preparation, and you're going to be just fine. Anywho, let's talk about actually going. So now I've got a clean body, a clean mind. Uh, I'm ready to go. We have to basically travel for 22 hours to go to our final destination or intermediate final destination, which is the city of Iquitos, Peru, in the Amazon basin. Um, Iquitos, I'm actually going to pull up a map of Iquitos because I forget. It's been about two years since I did this journey. Uh, Iquitos, Peru, which is an interesting little town, is in uh, northeastern Peru. So it's basically you have, if you think of this as, as Peru, it is on the west coast of South America. Uh, Lima is on this side. My camera's flipped. And then Iquitos would be up here in the interior uh, towards, what is that, Brazil? Yeah, towards Brazil and close to Colombia as well. And I mean, you are deep in it. So if you're watching the video of this, I will, I'm going to transfer over and I'll show you the video. So we basically flew from Seattle, Washington, all the way down. Uh, our first stop was in Los Angeles, and then we hopped on an international flight to uh, San Salvador, El Salvador, which we had a short layover, about four or five hours. From San Salvador, we flew into Lima, Peru. From Lima, Peru, we took a little puddle jumper to uh, Iquitos, Peru, which I'm zooming in now on the uh, the video. If you're watching the video, if you're just listening to the podcast version of this, uh, maybe go check out the video. It's the first video I've done for this sort of thing. Uh, but basically... We were on our way to Iquitos, Peru. We had to take about four flights to get there, and it was honestly about 24 hours uh, or 22 hours worth of travel to get there. Uh, I think the main reason for that is I live in Seattle, and to go anywhere from Seattle is an absolute nightmare just because we're so far out of the way, and you're almost guaranteed to have to get a connecting flight somewhere. So uh, 22-hour trip overnight in El Salvador, in Lima, Peru, uh, and then finally landing in Iquitos. Um, by the time that we got there, I was absolutely exhausted um, and going through a little bit of a culture shock as well because I had never left the country previously to this um, other than like Tijuana, Mexico and stuff. And uh, I'm one that's pretty good at different cultures and different people and, and, and taking things in stride. But I was actually a little bit surprised at the culture shock. And the culture shock didn't come from El Salvador. 
The culture shock didn't come from my layover in Lima. The culture shock came from getting picked up in Iquitos, Peru. I don't know. Uh, a lot of people that travel have experienced this, but a lot of people that haven't traveled uh, haven't experienced something like this. So we get off the, the plane in Iquitos, and it literally lands on the, the runway, and the stairs come down, and you have to walk off with all of your shit um, to the actual airport. Now, the airport in Iquitos, Peru, is basically just a football field-sized warehouse uh, with a couple of chairs in it. It is not an airport by any means. There's no food offerings. There's nothing like that. I mean, you're in the middle of, uh, of fucking nowhere, to tell you the truth. But you get off, and there's all of these, these motorbike and tuk-tuk drivers and a tuk-tuk if you don't know is like the um the motorcycle on the front with like two seats in the back for passengers uh you most commonly see it in like thailand and vietnam i think that's where the name tuk-tuk comes from i don't know that for sure uh but somehow they ended up in Quito's, and the same thing happens there and when you walk out of there you are just berated and hassled by uh local Iquitoans preying on tourists and i shouldn't say praying that's not the right word obviously we're coming to their city and we are spending money uh so there is a tourism uh job market there in which they participate in willingly so they're they're basically yelling you down hey join me hey join me hey i'll take you anywhere hey i'll give it to you for uh you know five bucks i'll give it to you for three bucks whatever it may be this was my first experience kind of negotiating trying to get sold actively uh even in just a cab ride so we finally grabbed this guy and we said, fuck it, take us to the Airbnb, which is actually a rather nice Airbnb given uh, the other locations in Iquitos. Um, but we hop in, and this is a really, really weird experience. Uh, you hop in, and you're in the middle of Iquitos, Peru, and it is rural, it is poor, um, it is almost tragic to see at some times on how other people around the world actually live, uh, coming from you know, North America, specifically the United States, we're very, very blessed financially. Um, and it was a little bit of an eye-opener, but that didn't bother me other than I was just tired and I was like, oh, look at all this poverty, right? So that was kind of playing on me a little bit. But we wanted to stop and get some mapacho. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, mapacho is uh, basically jungle tobacco or nicotine rustica, I think is like the, or nicotina rustica is the, I don't know, whatever, the, the proper name for it, if you will. And this is naturally grown tobacco that grows um, in the Amazonian uh, climate, the Amazonian jungles. Um, and it basically contains, I think, 7 to 10% more nicotine than, um, like, Western cigarettes and things like that. Um, but it doesn't have all the bullshit additives. So I had read about Nick, uh, uh, I had read about Mapacho. I had kind of been intrigued by Mapacho. I am one to definitely indulge in the occasional cigarette, especially when I'm gambling uh, in Vegas or just need to blow off some steam. Not so much anymore. Uh, but I've never stayed away from them, really. Um, and Mapacho really, really intrigued me. And also Mapacho goes with ayahuasca, which we'll get into soon. So. Uh, he says, "I'm going to take you by the market," and I forget the name of the market. Um, but it is like the largest market in Iquitos. And it is just stalls, rows and rows of stalls selling all different things. Touristy stuff, clothes. If you've ever been to like a Mexican flea market, it's very, very similar to that. But it was also a grocery uh, market as well. And we're driving, mind you, I'm on basically 22 hours of no sleep here. I went from cold, rainy, snowy Seattle, Washington 
uh, all the way to Iquitos, Peru, where it's 90 and the heat in, or the, the humidity is at like 90%. Um, so I'm, my body is stressed already. And then you take us to this market and we're driving down the stalls because of course this guy knows exactly where we're going to get Mapacho. Um, and you see monkey hands. You see turtles cut up and gutted just sitting on the tables. You see chickens with their head cut off. There's puddles of blood in the street from where they're actually killing these chickens. Um, And hey, guys, that's just a fact of life. Like, we're very lucky to live in the United States where at least we can remain ignorant to the slaughtering process. Uh, We have a shitload of factory farming, and it is honestly just as disgusting. But in Iquitos, it's right in front of your face. They're not allowed—I shouldn't say they're not allowed to hide it. They just don't hide it. Um, So that was, like, my first traumatic kind of experience. And again, I was under a lot of stress from all the travel and bullshit like that. But anyway, we get our mapacho. We go to our Airbnb, and we have a day and a half— uh, to hang out in Iquitos. Uh, the Super Bowl was going on. It was actually really cool. We went to the only place uh, that was showing the Super Bowl in all of Iquitos, which was this bar um, called the Something Rose of Texas or something like that. But I think it was owned by like a, an expat from Texas, opened up this bar. And they were playing the Super Bowl. I don't remember who was playing. This was uh, February of 2019 at... M- yeah, it must have been February of 2019. Uh, so if you remember who was playing then, very, very cool. I commend you. Uh, but I remember a lot of the, the, the local servers or the women that were working at this bar were just so intrigued by all of these Americans that had descended on this little bar in Iquitos, Peru, because of the ayahuasca tourism in Peru. Uh, it was a really, really shocking kind of experience for me to see how funny They thought we all were watching stupid football while eating fried alligator uh, and smoking mapacho cigarettes. Uh, Anyway, pretty cool, funny, shocking experience there. But the time has finally come. So I spent spent 29 minutes bullshitting to you guys about um, what is ayahuasca, why did I personally choose, where does ayahuasca happen, what, what do you do before to prepare for ayahuasca. Now we're here. Right, I'm in Iquitos, Peru. The next morning, I'm getting picked up by Stacy uh, in his 4x4 truck to drive us two and a half hours into uh, the jungle to actually do ayahuasca. And I knew that. I was, I was nervous at this time uh, because I had heard about ayahuasca. I had heard about its potency. I had heard about the horror stories. I've heard about the successes. I've heard about how uncomfortable it makes you. Um, I had heard it all. A lot of the times, um, it's not a fun experience, guys. Ayahuasca is a very, very, very difficult experience. Um, This is not a recreational drug. Uh, Psilocybin mushrooms, oftentimes recreational. Should you be doing it recreationally? Maybe not, but I mean, that's up to you personally, right? Uh, LSD. Not necessarily a recreational drug, but could you do it recreationally and have a great time with your friends? Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, you're obviously going to use psilocybin mushrooms and LSD for whatever you, you need to get out of them, uh, and I hope that you do that responsibly. But you could definitely use these recreationally and have a bang-up time and a great experience. Ayahuasca, on the other hand, or I should say DMT in general, and then dimethyltryptamine is basically the most powerful psychedelic that we are aware of. Um, 
and more traditionally in the West, it's smoked. Uh, you basically get powder or solid state DMT that you can ingest and it blasts you off into hyperspace for 15 minutes. Uh, ayahuasca is the long form version of smoking DMT. You orally ingest it. It lasts about six to eight hours. Uh, and during that time, you are vomiting. You have diarrhea, stomach cramps. Oftentimes you have hot flashes and you're sweating. And that's just the physical stuff. Um, the mental and emotional stuff is often way more taxing than that. You hear stories of absolutely going to hell, seeing yourself die, seeing your loved ones die, seeing your parents die, uh, getting face to face with a lot of your largest fears and things that uh, you would just never want to see in your life. And now the reason people do it is because when you go through that experience, you gain something from it. You see it in a different light. Uh, you may not be as afraid of it anymore. Again, this goes on. You can you can create ten thousand spider webs from just uh, what the uh, emotional response to seeing all this shit actually is and how it benefits you in the future. But I I knew all this. I knew that I was in for three sessions of eight hours where I'd be puking and shitting and possibly going to hell and seeing myself die and my loved ones die and getting visions of past traumas and all of this stuff. So this is no light load to bear. Like when you go into an ayahuasca ceremony, uh, there is a feeling or a weight in the room that is very serious. It is not laughing and not joking. Uh, so with that being said, like I'll get into that later on. But this is the night before we're watching the Super Bowl, and I very much know that tomorrow we're getting picked up and we're going into the jungle. Okay, so let's fast forward. Let's fast forward to pickup time. Where am I going? I picked a location uh, just outside of Iquitos, It was about two and a half hours, two hours by truck uh, called Dream Glade. Dream Glade is an ayahuasca retreat center that was set up by a gentleman by the name of Stacy. His last name is L-A-T. I don't know if it's late. Uh, but you pronounce or spell his first name, you spell his first name S-T-A-C-E, and that's Stacy, and his last name is L-T-E, so I'm assuming that's late, but given the pronunciation of his first name, it could be Latte, I doubt that, so we'll call him Stacy Late. He uh, created Dreamglade, I think about 2013, 2014, I'm making that up because at the time, I think he said he'd been in operation five or six years, something like that, um, so don't quote me on that. Um, but basically, he was from England, and he had experienced psychedelics throughout his life. He had experienced ayahuasca. Uh, he had gone to a psychedelic institute, I think, at one point. He, he briefly told me about, um, and he decided to move his family to Peru or move himself to Peru where he started a family, and he built an ayahuasca retreat center. I had researched a shitload of ayahuasca retreat centers in that two days. Um, there was a couple things that were really, really important to me, the first of which was – very much, uh, is it legit? I did not want to get a whitewashed ayahuasca experience. I wanted to be in the middle of it. I wanted it to be authentic. I wanted to treat it with respect. I wanted it to treat me with respect. And when I say treat me with respect, I wanted to kick my ass. I did not want it to be this whitewashed uh, fairyland. You see a lot of these ayahuasca retreat centers pop up in Costa Rica. They're really big of like, we're going to do yoga and we're going to charge you five grand for this session and then we're going to pack 75 people into a room and blah 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 fuck you 
I don't want that kind of ayahuasca experience. Like, I don't want air conditioning. I don't want any of that bullshit. We're doing it like the like the old school way. So I found Dreamglade, and it was really clean, really respectable, but still very much true to the roots of ayahuasca. And again, I say that as, as a 30-year-old white guy, but from all the research I had done, this is, this is something that I felt very, very comfortable going and doing. Uh, and what I mean by comfortable is that it felt honest. It felt like a really honest retreat center. When I, when I saw it online, I'd been searching for a bunch of people, and it just spoke to me, and I knew it instantly. And they even have a video on YouTube. Uh, I think the, it's called The Call to Ayahuasca, and they interview some people that are there, and they interview Stacy and how he started this whole thing. Uh, so I suggest that you uh, look into that if you're interested at, at where I was going. Um, but I selected Dreamglade. Um, and, okay, so it's the day that we're going to get picked up. Stacy pulls up. I'm very, very nervous. Uh, my friend Marissa and I, who came along to do the journey with me, we hop in the back of Stacy's car and Stacy's in a weird mood. I had never met Stacy before. I'd seen him on the YouTube video before. Um, so it's kind of almost like meeting this, I don't want to say guru because that's not how I thought about him, but you, you see this guy who really like stepped up and created something out in the Amazonian jungle because he believed in ayahuasca and he believed in, in helping people. And as you can hear, there is a fire truck just blasting outside my window. Uh, so when I, when I finally met him, I was expecting to be like starstruck a little bit because like, here's a guy that, that followed his heart and did what he wanted to do, but he was in a really bad mood. Interesting enough. He was, he was, he was pissed off. I evidently running an ayahuasca retreat center two and a half hours outside of the closest city is not an easy task. Uh, when you need gas and fuel and clean water and food and, uh, to exchange all the currency that your people are giving you, it's a really difficult task. So we get in the back of his, his truck and he doesn't talk much. Uh, but in the front seat is a girl named Chelsea. Chelsea uh, is from Vancouver, uh, BC, which is actually coincidentally enough just you know two and a half hour, three hour drive uh, from me in Seattle, Washington. So it's kind of funny that was the first person I met on this journey that was coming to Dreamglade with us, and she was so close to what I now call home. Uh, super, super sweet girl had actually been to Dreamglade before. I think about uh, twelve to to eighteen months previously, and, and and she was on her way back for her second journey. Um, so we met her and we, we hop in the car and, and we're driving about two and a half hours. Stacy's in a bad mood. He's kind of grumbling under his breath. He's smoking mapacho. I'm in the back smoking my mapacho, which is fantastic, by the way. You can chain smoke mapacho all day long, unlike American cigarettes, and you just like your throat won't get too sore. Uh, you're not going to experience any anything too bad. Um, sorry, my, my computer just went crazy. I mean, and Shut down, but we're back. So anyway, I was chain-smoking Mapacho. Stacy's chain-smoking Mapacho. Marissa's in the seat next to me freaking out because she knows she's going into this journey as well, and it's going to be really, really difficult. So fast forward. We get to uh, Dreamglade, and once we got to Dreamglade, my anxieties really, really went away. We pull up, and this fucking awesome guy who works with Stacy at Dreamclade named Drew, um, rolls up. And Drew is kind of like the caretaker of Dreamclade. Stacy is the, the owner and the proprietor of the Ayahuasca Center. Uh, and then Stacy is his American, I think from Texas, counterpart that takes care of a lot of the work. And he's allowed to, to live there and to work there and to participate in Ayahuasca ceremonies. And Drew is fucking cool, man. Uh, this guy, really, really into like Wim Hof, breathing techniques um and just a crazy psychonaut but with a crazy amount of respect and he's intelligent and he's caring and he's thoughtful he's like if if there was ever like a an american shaman um that was like legit it would be drew it wouldn't be one of these people that are just like just go with the flow and 
no. Like, Drew was serious, like, hey, man, you're a fucking idiot. Like, try this, do this, let me listen to you. Very, very cool, guys. So we get there, and the first thing that happens after driving two and a half hours uh, is Stacy walks us into the big house. Now, Dreamglade, I'm going to pull up a couple pictures of Dreamglade if you're watching this video um, to kind of give you an idea of what is happening uh, at Dreamglade. Do I have it up? No, but I've got my iCloud photos of actually stuff at Dreamclade. So let me transition here to my iCloud photos and see if I can find some pictures for you. Just bear with me. Um, no, you know I don't have any. I don't have any great pictures. So let me transition back here. Uh, so Dreamclade is basically set up uh, into a couple main parts. The main part is the Malacca or the Maloka. To this day, I still don't really know how to pronounce it. I don't think it really matters. I call it the Malacca because I'm from Chicago, but a lot of people from uh, the UK call it the Maloka, um, which is cool too. Power to you. But the Malacca, as I'm going to call it, and again, I'm probably butchering that, so sorry, uh, is the ceremony house. Now, it serves two purposes at Dreamclade. It's where all the ceremonies are conducted, but also you can, if you pay a cheaper rate, uh, you can sleep in the Malacca with a bunch of other people that have paid the cheaper rate as well. Uh, if I were to go back, that's what I would do, to tell you the truth. Um, I upgraded for like, I don't know, like something like $10 more a day or something. So it was like 50 bucks more for the entire trip, which was no big deal. To have my own hut or residence, if you will. And when I say hut, it's basically four wood walls with a bed in it and a mosquito net. That's it. So if I were to go back, I would be like, I don't need that. Like, I want to be around other people anyway. Uh, just put me in the, in the Maloka. Um, so it serves two purposes. That's where all the ceremonies are held, and then that's where you sleep as a group if you don't have your own sort of residence, if you will. So that's the first thing that you kind of see when you roll up. The second thing that you see when you roll up is like the main hangout center or the dining room or the library area, or it's just the chill center. Uh, and this is where you spend a lot of your time. Um when you're at Dreamglade. Uh, so you have the Maloka, you have the kind of hangout kitchen, library, recreation center, uh, and then you have all of the huts kind of surrounding it, and it's on a, a lake, basically. And when I say lake, I mean very, very small. Like it could be considered the size of like, um, like a big puddle, to tell you the truth, but you can sw sw swim in it. It's deep enough for stuff like that. So he takes us in to the, the, the kitchen building or a recreational building, if you will. And all of my worries really go out the window. Um, he, his demeanor changed. It was like Stacy, I mean, his demeanor changed. It was like he was in the outside world and he was stressed because he was doing business ship and he was picking up propane. He was picking up fresh water. He was converting currency. He was dealing with the hustle and bustle of the Quitos, which is a really fast-paced, dirty, grimy, smoggy, uh, hustling city. And then we get there, and we sit down in the main room, and he's just relaxed, cool as a cucumber. And it, it just totally disarmed me as well. And the first thing that he does is he pulls out an ashtray. He pulls out a giant bag of mapacho pre-rolled cigarettes, um, puts them on the table, offers me one, offers Marissa one, starts smoking one himself. So within 30 seconds of getting there, like Drew's taken our bags. He's walked us into uh, the recreation center where he's sitting us down. And he's basically giving us a rundown now. He's basically saying, hey, welcome. Uh, I'm going to tell you some fucking things. The first thing that he told us uh, was we're going to be starting a diet, a dieta. Now, I talked about the ayahuasca diet previously, which is very much how do you prepare 
um, for ayahuasca, and he's assuming that you've done all this stuff beforehand because he will be very clear that says like, hey, if you did not do this shit and you didn't take care of your body, like, hey, for the first two ceremonies, you are fucked, man. Congratulations. You really like screwed yourself over. Um, and he's very, very honest about that kind of stuff. So anyway, the first thing that he talks about as we're sitting around smoking mapacho is the dieta that's going to put us all on. Um, Marissa and I had never done any formal dieta. Um, and here's what a dieta is once you get to the retreat center. You're not allowed to touch anybody. No physical contact between two human beings. And I think the theory there is that you don't want to pick up on anybody else's energy or karma, like even in a handshake or a high five. So it's actually kind of funny because I walked into the center uh, and there was a guy that I had met on Reddit. His name was Sean before going there and he said oh my god man i'm gonna be i'm gonna be there at the same time that you're gonna be there so i walked in and he looked at me and i kind of looked at him and we had this experience i was like are you sean he's like yeah are you jake and and i went to shake his hand and he said sorry man i can't and i was like what the fuck do you mean that you can't shake my hand i just wrote it off right because i had bigger fish to fry at the time and then stacy sits us down and he starts talking about the dieta which is no physical contact between two human beings and again that is because you don't want to absorb their their negative energy or do anything to kind of offset your ayahuasca experience. Um, so that's the first thing that happens on a, a true ayahuasca. You're at the retreat center, dieta. The second thing that he goes over is the plant medicine that you're going to be dieting on. Uh, there are a couple different plant medicines that you can be dieting on, um, and these will all come to you in a different way during the ceremony. And what I mean by that is a lot of times they say, if you diet on this plant for a week, which basically means to me was drinking a tea made from the, the specific plant that I was dieting on, I think once a night or maybe it was twice a day, like once in the morning and once in the evening, that plant would come to you in your ayahuasca visions and help guide you. Uh, and as you go through your weeks or ceremonies, it transitions to different, different plants. But since I was only there for a week, uh, I was on one plant the entire time. And now I'm going to try to remember. Ah, I just remembered. Uh, the plant that I was dieting on is a plant called Ahosacha. I'm going to Google Ahosacha real quick. Ahosacha. It's a shrub that is native to the upper Amazon rainforest. While it's not in the garlic family. Um, damn, I just lost it. While it's not in the garlic family, its leaves, vine, bark, and roots have the characteristics, resemblance, and smell of real garlic. And I can tell you that is the truth. So uh, Drew, I think every morning or every evening, used to make all of our dietas. He'd go in there and he'd brood all of the different reeds, roots and plants and, and trees and shit like that. Uh, and mine was ahusacha and it very much tasted like garlic. So I had to drink a tea of this, I think twice a day, maybe one time a day. Um, really, really tasted like garlic, right? So everybody that's there is dieting on a plant. Uh, Sean at the time was dying on coca leaves and a few other people were dieting on other plants as well. Um, a lot of people are there for like a month at a time. Like they're stopping life for a month to go do ayahuasca in the middle of the jungle. Um, and they get a really awesome experience where they can where they can diet on different plants and things like that. So I am getting the rundown. I'm being told no human contact. I'm being told that you're going to be dieting on ahosacha, uh, which is this kind of garlicky uh, plant or a root. Um, and then I am told about the, the eating at the facility. The facility pays for all this stuff. Dreamglade, I shouldn't say pays for all of it. It's included in your price. Uh, and here's how food works there. It is very much the ayahuasca diet. No salt, no sugar, no 
meat in general, high in fruits, uh, high in uh, vegetables, things like that. So on days that you are not uh, going through a ceremony, you will get a breakfast, lunch, and dinner. On days that you are going through a ceremony, you get a you get a breakfast and a lunch, I think. No dinner because we want you to like digest before you actually go in and drink ayahuasca. Um, so he was telling us all this stuff. Uh, we were sitting around smoking mapacho, and he just really disarmed me. Like He made it feel really, really comfortable. Everybody that was there was very nice. And my first ceremony was that night. Which is why I was so nervous. Uh, so I signed up for three ceremonies at Dreamglade. You do them on alternating days. So I think it was something like you come in on Saturday, there's a ceremony. You do another ceremony on, uh, maybe it wasn't a Saturday. Maybe it was like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday sort of thing. So ceremonies Monday, Wednesday, Friday. You relax and integrate on Tuesday and Thursday and then the following Saturday as well before you leave. Uh, so a week-long ceremony, a week-long uh, visit to Dreamblade, which included three ceremonies. Um, and the first one was the night that I got there. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I think that it was a Monday night. So basically, uh, he said, you're not going to eat anything until the ceremony. Now we're getting into the juicy stuff, guys. Uh, the ceremony typically starts at uh, 8 p.m. So... Uh, we're basically told to relax for two or three hours. It might be 5 p.m., 4.35 p.m. by the time that we get to the retreat center, and we are told to hang out for a few hours uh, before the ceremony. So what do we do? Uh, we smoke, we unpack, we meet people, we hang out, we talk about where they're from. Um, another really cool thing about Dreamblade or just ayahuasca retreats in general is that you meet people from all over the world. Uh, so there you had Sean, who was from the UK. You had James, who was from the UK. You had this other woman who was from Hungary, but currently living in the UK, but a very, very heavy Hungarian accent. Uh, you had somebody there from... Bo it wasn't Bosnia. It might have been Bosnia. Maybe somebody from Bosnia as well. I can't remember where that gentleman was from. We had somebody there from Tennessee. We had somebody there from... Well, Seattle with my my roommate and I, um, I can't remember where everybody else was from. There's only about 11 or 12 of us there, maybe even less. Uh, but you get to, to meet and hang out with everybody. So here's what an ayahuasca ceremony actually looks like. It gets, starts to get dark, right? And we're told to be in the Maloka at um, 8 p.m. So about 7.30, I roll into the Maloka. Uh, you sit down on your map and now the, mat, and now the Maloka, I'll describe it, is a um, a big circular uh, hut, basically, uh, that is fairly large in size and has a really, really high elevated kind of peaking ceiling. Think about it as like a, um, like a funnel ceiling, and then the walls go straight down to kind of create like a circular base. That's what a maloka looks like. Uh, and you're supposed to gather in there, and everybody takes a seat, and everybody hangs out for a little bit. Uh, so I bring my mat. It's like a yoga mat. I bring that in there. There's a mattress in there for me as well. Um, and I sit down. Now, when I sit down, Drew has already been setting up for our ceremony that's going to happen that night. Remember, Drew's the caretaker. So you sit on your mattress or your yoga mat, whatever you've got, and you look to your left, and there's an ashtray because you're going to be chain-smoking mapacho all night, and there's a bucket. Now, what do you think this bucket is for? 
It's not for clean drinking water, I'm going to tell you that much. It is very much for all of the puke that is going to be coming out during the ceremony. They literally give you a bucket because you'll be puking your brains out during the ceremony, as most people do. Uh, so you've got your bucket, you've got your mattress, you have your ashtray, you have what other kind of other relics you want to bring along. Like I had uh, a pair of dog tags that my dad had given me that I always wear. I'm actually wearing them now. I had that with me. Um, I had, what else did I have with me? I guess that's really, really it. Um, but other people bring knickknacks, patty wax, whatever it is to kind of help them through their ceremony as well. Um, at this stage at about 7.30, we'll call it, the, the attitude in the Maloka is very relaxed. Very, very relaxed. Um, we're laughing, we're chatting. One of the things that came up my very first night was, uh, we are talking about the flavor of ayahuasca or people that were experienced were talking about the, the flavor because they said, Jake, have you ever done this before? And I said, no, absolutely not. Like I've never done ayahuasca. This is my first experience. Um, and they all kind of laughed because, ayahuasca tastes like shit man like there's no other way that i can really describe what ayahuasca tastes like other than disgusting um but here's kind of what happened is we're sitting around joking and sean says to me ayahuasca kind of takes like tastes like a, a coffee laced with raisins um that you would get from like mcdonald's or something so almost like a coffee raisin frappuccino um, and everybody kind of laughed because, yeah, yeah, maybe it sort of tastes like that. Um, but also the theory, too, is that, like, when you drink ayahuasca more and more, uh, the taste gets worse and worse and worse. And I have a theory on this as well. Uh, and that theory is once you go through an experience and realize how tough it is and exhausting it is, your body um, relates that experience with the taste that you're experiencing. And it's basically giving you the middle finger saying like, why are you doing this again? Do not drink this shit again. I don't want to go do this thing again. So I'm going to make this taste as like foul as possible. So you very much have to stomach it. So we're all laughing and joking about that. And, oh, where are you from? And we got into food because obviously we've been suppressed uh, with our dietary choices for the past, some people for a month, myself for two and a half weeks or so. Uh, so Sean is over in the corner talking about a proper English breakfast. I'm talking about uh, corned beef hash. Other people are talking about uh, food from their from their home countries that they would love to be tasting. We're all laughing and joking. Stacy and the shamans walk in. We stop joking. Uh, I very much picked up on the energy from everybody else. When Stacy and the shamans walk in, it's time to shut the fuck up. Um, and I think now this is a good time to talk about the shamans themselves. So there's two shamans. That were at Dreamglade were actually one of the, the strong reasons that I chose Dreamglade is they had a brother and sister pair of shaman, uh, Raul y Lydia, uh, that had been with Dreamglade, I think, since it started, honestly, and had been working with the plants for like the last 30 or, or 40 years. Uh, they were definitely elderly. I'm talking 70s, maybe. Um, and they had been doing ayahuasca and practicing uh, plant medicine for a very, very long time. And they were they were a legitimate pair. They lived at Dreamglade. Stacy supported them. He paid them a wage for, for leading these ayahuasca ceremonies. Because, hey, guess what, guys? The idea of an ayahuasca ceremony is not that you just drink ayahuasca and you sit uh, with your friends and you have a good time. No. You should be uh, guided in this journey. It is a stressful journey. It is a journey to the unknown. It is a journey to a different world. It is a journey uh, to somewhere that if you were left to your own demise would be very, 
very, if not impossible, very, very difficult, if not impossible to navigate. So that is the point of the shaman. These two shamans are there to guide you in your ayahuasca experience. Imperative, imperative force to trust your shamans, uh, to know that their intentions are pure and that they come from a background of doing this sort of thing and have a lot of experience doing this sort of thing because they actually drink ayahuasca with you. Uh, I came to find out that they actually drink a different brew of ayahuasca uh, than the rest of us had been drinking. I don't know what that difference is. Um, I don't know exactly why they drink a different brew, but Stacy had told me in one of our conversations that they actually drink a different brew. So they are basically tripping on ayahuasca with you, but they have you know 40 years of experience going into the spirit world, kind of as they call it, um, and working with mother ayahuasca, um, and they guide you through this experience. And I'll get into how they guide you very, very shortly. But they walk in. The laughing stops. It's not – we're not having a good time anymore. We're not having a bad time, but it's very much the feeling of like uh, if you've ever played – maybe that's not a good – I was going to say if you've ever played paintball um, and you get to the point where the ref says, okay, put your your hand on the starting block basically or like you have to be touching this to start the game – you're all laughing, and then you hear the ref say, all right, get ready. Nobody fucking talks anymore. Like, you go into war mode. Uh, I've never been to war, so I'm not going to attribute it to war. But, like, it was very reminiscent of, like, you're on the starting lines. Like, you're lining up at the blocks. You're in sprinter stance before the gun goes off. That was kind of the mentality of, like, okay, I need to focus right now because we're going to be leaving soon. Um, and when I say leaving, I mean going into the, the spirit world. Um, so they walk in and, and the mentality changes. Uh, and I think Stacy even said like, oh, everybody's having fun, huh? Um, kind of is like this, um, this, uh, father figure in some way to say like, <laughs> uh, you guys better knock it off because we have work to do. Um, which was a really, really cool fucking thing to see. So we're all sitting around about 12 of us in this giant maloka. Uh, Stacy comes in, the shamans come in, they sit down, they start smoking mapacho, we all shut up, we start meditating, everybody has their own kind of pre-ayahuasca ceremony or ritual that we got into. Mine was very much uh, sit up straight, uh, lay my, have my legs out in front of me, um, breathe deeply, lightly meditate, and chain smoke mapacho. Uh, light one mapacho right after the other, <laughs> start sucking them down, basically get prepared for it. Um, since it was Monday, right, the first ceremony of the new group, uh, we were the only people, Marissa and myself were the only two newcomers that came that day, except for Chelsea, uh, the girl from Vancouver that we rode in with, but she had been to the center before she had experience with ayahuasca. So he basically did like a 40 minute conversation dedicated, uh, to Marissa and myself, where he kind of went over the rules of the road and how to stay calm during ayahuasca. He basically told us what to expect, um... And he gave us, I think, I'm going to try and remember these three rules. I can be, I, the, this talk can be summed up in three rules. The three rules that he told me were uh, don't stop breathing. When in doubt, breathe deep uh, and breathe in a really focused manner, right? Big inhale, strong exhale. Big inhale, strong exhale. Keep calm, he was basically saying. He was also saying let go. Let go. He's, you're going to see some shit in the next eight hours that you have never seen in your life, that you've never been a part of in your life, that you've never experienced in your life. You may experience complete and total ego death where you basically lose who you are as a person. You might see your family members, your friends. You might see horrific things. You might see beautiful things. 
You don't know what you're going to see uh, and stop trying to think about what you're going to see. So just let go. Let it take you and breathe heavy. Uh, Those were two. And the third thing that he said was, uh, don't try to understand shit right now. So when you're in there and you're breathing heavy and you're seeing all the shit that doesn't make sense and that you don't understand and that you can't attribute to anything that you've seen before, he was saying, don't try to decode it while you're in there. Uh, Just experience it. Let go. um, Don't obsess over it and just be one with the experience. And those were really like the three things that were distilled from his 45-minute conversation outside of like, hey, here's what to expect. We'll be coming around checking on you, blah, 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 blah. So after that, we go back to our mats, and it is time to start the ceremony. It's pitch black outside by this time, and Drew is gathering a bunch of, oh, man, Palo Santo wood um, in a burner in the middle of the Maloka. He lights all of this stuff on fire, all the Palo Santo wood on fire uh, until it basically smokes out the entire Maloka. I'm talking like a shitload of smoke here. Like you, you have to wave it out of your face. So he's walking around with this burning Palo Santo and it's done to, um, what's the word that I want to use? Uh, cleanse the environment from evil or bad or off-putting spirits. He's basically saying what you did with your body to the Maloka. We're starting fresh. We're starting from a clean slate. All bad energy, all bad spirit, get out of here. He then walks outside. And when you walk outside, you know that you've got about 30 seconds until shit gets real. Because he'll walk outside and he'll walk around the Maloka and do the same thing. And when he's done walking around the Maloka, it's time to drink. So that's why, I mean, you have about 30 seconds. So he comes back inside. He'll put it on the middle table. He'll sit down. And Stacy is there. And he'll call you up one by one. He'll call you and say, Sean, come on up. And uh, you'll hear, uh, and obviously you can see this too, but you're, you're trying to focus on yourself and your breathing. So you, see, you hear, hey, Sean, how you doing? And Sean will say, I'm good, mate. <laughs> or that's Australian. He's English. Sorry about that, Sean. Uh, but he'll say, I'm good. Cheers. How you doing? Uh, and Stacey will say, what dose are we doing today? Now, Stacy is there and the shamans are there to um, gauge what they think you should be taking. But there is also this element of trust of, Sean, you've done this before. You have uh, been with us before. You've been through a couple ceremonies before. I'm going to let you decide on the dose uh, that you want to take. So I think Sean was at, at full full glasses at this time. When I say full glasses, I mean like a shot glass. What is a shot? Like 2.5 ounces or 3 ounces? I don't know. But he was doing a full shot glass of ayahuasca. So Sean takes his... That's weird. I'm getting an upset stomach thinking about drinking ayahuasca right now. Uh, But Sean drinks his ayahuasca, sits back down. Then he calls up the next person. Same thing happens. How much are we doing? How are you doing? Uh, Stuff like that. They drink theirs. They drink theirs. They drink theirs. We all go around. It's finally time for me to come up. So I go up. He says, Jake, how are you doing? You're going to be ready for this? I say, yeah. Um, Now, people out there listening, I've had my share of uh, psychedelic experiences before. Um, I've taken LSD, I've taken psilocybin mushrooms. I've actually had some really bad trips on psilocybin mushrooms, uh, when I was more involved in other substances, um, because maybe my mental state just wasn't that great. Uh, but I've also had really uh, profound and, and kind of fun experiences on psilocybin as well. So I had some experience. Um, but for those who don't remember, it's like, I've been sober for six years. I stopped taking all other substances, which includes psychedelics. I don't smoke weed anymore. I don't drink alcohol. So this would be the first thing that I'm putting into my body in like the last, um, five years at this time, almost five years at the time that I was going to do this ayahuasca ceremony. Um, And I was okay with drinking ayahuasca because it was, to me, 
growth. It was medicine. It wasn't recreational. It was very, very um, focused around improving myself and becoming a better individual and overcoming adversity and struggle and the, the pain of the trip itself or the experience itself. So I was okay with drinking it. So he calls me up, and we decide to start with a, uh, a half glass for the first time. Uh, he pours it, and I'm looking at this glass, and it is syrupy. It's thick. It's brown. It looks like bark. It looks like uh, chocolate milk mixed with bark, um, mixed with maple syrup to thicken it up even more, if you will. And he hands me this cup, and I, and, and I slurp it down. And to my surprise, the taste wasn't terrible right off of the bat. It was almost exactly as Sean had described, which was like a cafe uh, mixed with raisins or really stale raisins um, from McDonald's. And that was okay with me. It wasn't, it wasn't terrible the first time. So I go back to my seat and I, I lit a mapacho and I found that even helps to kind of mitigate the terrible flavors even more. And by that time, I know that we've got about 15 minutes, 15 minutes until this shit kicks in. So once everybody drinks their ayahuasca around the circle, the ceremony is about to kick off, right? We've all ingested it. We're all back on our, our mattresses or our mats, um, and we're kind of waiting. At this point, all the lights get blown out. There's a couple candles uh, and lanterns that have been lit, and whoosh, Drew blows out. So you are sitting in pitch black, pitch black, in the middle of the Amazonian jungle. You can hear monkeys. You can hear birds. You can hear rustling throughout the jungle, um, and it is pitch black and there's no sound at this point except the sound of the animals outside and people <sighs> inhaling their mapacho to try and get themselves to relax. Because once again, drinking ayahuasca is not a peaceful experience. It is very much six hours of work. It is, it's like you're going into a marathon here. So people are very, very serious. So there's 12 of us around the circle. We've all ingested our dosage of ayahuasca. Uh, Stacy, um, did say, no, Stacy did not drink the first night. No, Stacy did drink the first night. He actually drank. So the Drew, Stacy, and one of their helpers would drink uh, once a week at one third of the ceremonies, or one out of three of the ceremonies, I should say. And then the shamans drink with you every night to guide you in the experience. And this was Stacy's night to do it. So. Um, no, I got that wrong. It was somebody else's night. It wasn't Stacy. Stacy was definitely the second night. Not that that matters. So it's pitch black. Um, now, what are the shamans there to do? Right? They've just consumed their ayahuasca. It's pitch black. Like I said, the shaman's job is to uh, guide all of us through the experience. And how do they do that? Well, they join us in the spirit world. Uh, and they are very much uh, holding our hand throughout that process, which is why it's so important to be trusted. And how do they commute with you, communicate with you through the spirit world? They do it through something called Icaros. And this is probably the most profound thing that happens uh, from a relationship with your, your um, shaman during the ceremony is listening to their Icaros and kind of decoding these Icaros uh, to whatever message that you need to get from it. And it's very much the feeling of the shaman knows what Icaros sing for individuals. Now, an Icaro is a song, is an ancient Amazonian sort of shamanistic song that they sing throughout the entire six-hour experience. So I'll play some for you, but, but picture this. It's, it's pitch black in the middle of the Amazonian jungle. You hear rustles from outside. The only thing that you can see 
in the uh, pitch black Maloka right now is the cherries of Mapacho cigarettes, right? The little embers that are glowing as people inhale Mapacho. Uh, that's really all you can see. All you can hear is the sounds outside and people inhaling the Mapacho until this starts. And I'm going to go over here and play it. These are actually Icaros from Dreamglade. Somebody had, had found them or recorded them and put them up on uh, SoundCloud. Uh, so I will, I'm going to go ahead and play them real quick. <laughs> this is literally from Dreamglade, an exact Icaros that I heard. So this starts about 15 minutes early, and nobody's tripping yet because it takes about a half an hour to kick in. But it's, it's silent, and then this starts. I'll play I'll play one more. Uh, but even listening to that it take it takes me back to this experience. I mean talk about being out of your comfort zone. You're in the middle of the Amazonian jungle in Peru, um, ingesting a medicine that is upwards of 10,000 years old uh, that is going to rocket you into definitely a different dimension, have you see some pretty serious, scary shit. You're surrounded by people from other cultures, other countries, um, and basically the shaman's going to be from another world compared to, to where I come from. And you hear that singing. And I'll play one more. Let me see if I can actually find one from Raul. So that was Lydia that was singing, um, and she was the female uh, shaman. And I don't know if they have a different term for the female version of a shaman. Um, but I want to see if I can find Raul. Here we go. Here's Raul as well. <laughs> and if you hear that, whoosh, that is people blowing out mapacho smoke. This goes on for six hours, and they alternate between each other. They'll go for, I don't honestly know how long they would go for, because when you're tripping balls, uh, time ceases to exist. But maybe they'd go for 15 minutes, 25 minutes each, and then slip back and forth. Okay. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of context. They do that for six hours, and that is how they guide you on this journey. So at this point, I've ingested the ayahuasca. I'm smoking my mapacho. The Icaros have started, and I am preparing to go into the unknown, basically. And you're surrounded by individuals who are preparing to go into the unknown, too. And I think that is a very, very critical part of this experience, too, is that you are doing this journey with other people that are looking to get answers and looking to go on similar self-exploratory uh, uh, and positive experiences. And we're all basically going off to war. And I don't mean that, you know, lightly. Um, I mean that that's kind of the mentality of like, we're going into this thing. We're going together. You are now my brothers and sisters. Uh, so there's very much that feeling 
in the room. It's a heavy feeling, but it is also a really like bonding and comforting feeling as well. So now I'm going to go into my own personal experience. Let me actually, you know, I haven't, I haven't looked at this in a while. I wouldn't, I got a book. Hold on. I am looking for, you know what? Hold on one sec. I have a diary with my experiences that I haven't read since I came home from uh, Iquitos uh, and Dreamblade. So I'm just going to just give me a second because I'm going to go find that and then we'll continue this story and I'm going to try and uh, remember my um, experience uh, and then I'm going to read my experience and see how closely they align. So just hold on just one second and I'm going to go see if I can find this. So bear with me. Okay, I found it for people. That was probably about two minutes that I was gone, so I'm just going to edit that down. But I'm back, and I've got uh, – I actually found out that I only have one of the ceremonies written down in here, but it was the most uh, sort of profound uh, ceremony. So I will read that to you when we get to the second ceremony. But right now we're on the first ceremony. We've drinking it, and uh, the Icaros are going on in the background. Um and it's time to blast off, basically. Now, if you remember, I took a half dose or a half shot glass full of ayahuasca for this first experience um, to kind of uh, introduce me to, to Mother Ayahuasca. And I will say that ayahuasca is viewed as a female entity. It is very, very maternal um, in its uh, vibe or the way that it comes to you, if you will. Um, so it's known as Mother Ayahuasca. Then you also have the father which is mapacho. It's that nicotine rustica or the jungle tobacco that I was telling you about earlier. So you really work with both of these plant medicines at the same time while also dieting on ajo sacha, right? I was drinking that brew of ajo sacha, I think once a night or twice a day, something like that. So you're doing all of this stuff. You're, you're basically learning from the plants during this experience. And that's very much the, the idea or, or the feeling that you get from this. So I'm sitting there chain smoking mapacho. And now let's talk about the experience. The first thing of the first uh, ceremony that I experienced is really um, I was getting some rainbow sort of lines in my vision. I think my eyes were closed at this time because I was trying to relax a little bit. Uh, one, because I was nervous that um, I was going to see some crazy fucked up shit. But the other one was I was trying not to vomit. This stuff is disgusting. It tastes horrible. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Uh, I very much did not want to vomit. I wanted to make sure that I held it in long enough to uh, at least get the DMT into my system or some of the DMT into my system. So I start to experience some waving lines in my vision. Uh, these are very familiar to me. Uh, I, I think back to, to years ago uh, while I'm sitting there and I say, oh, yeah, 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 this is kind of something that I'm familiar with, these, these psychedelic sort of uh, lines and waves and distortions, if you will, um, and they get a little bit stronger. As time goes on, they get a little bit stronger. They get a little bit stronger. Maybe, maybe a half an hour or 40 minutes have passed at this point. And really the only visuals that I'm getting in terms of like pure, true visuals that like something is there that I, I'm, I'm seeing that's not actually there, like hallucinating, are these rainbow sort of lines. Now, the interesting part in Ceremony 1 comes from uh, the mental thing that happened to me. Remember, it's pitch black. The Icaros are going off in the background. Uh, you hear whew, whew, breathing from the shamans, blowing bad spirits away. 
They're guiding you very much. And Mother Ayahuasca comes to me. I don't know how to describe it other than my Mother Ayahuasca came to me. And she said to me, Jake, uh, welcome. We are going to do an inspection. What I want you to do is lay down on your back right now. So I would lay down on my back. I was smoking mapacho, uh, and it was the feeling that Mother Ayahuasca had me on an operating table or an examination table and was literally looking over every part of me. Um, so she would say, okay, lay on your back. I'm going to check some stuff out. Okay, okay, not too bad. And then I would hear something in, uh, in my brain say, okay, Jake, now it's time to turn to your left. So I would turn onto my left side, and then again, I would hear Mother Ayahuasca say, okay, 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 I see. And then she would say, Jake, good job. You're doing really, really well. Now turn to your right. And uh, I would have to turn to my right. And the same thing again. Okay, 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 I see. It was very much the feeling of, welcome, Jake. We're going to do your preliminary check-in. We're going to make sure that everything is functioning okay. Um, and if this goes well, then uh, we're going to go and, and we're going to learn some stuff. So that seemed to go okay for a while. Now, uh, something else happened in this. Uh, I will say that this is a very, very light ayahuasca experience. No physical discomfort, uh, no vomiting, no, uh, no diarrhea, no shitting. All around me, you hear retching and just gallons of internal sludge coming out of people. I mean, the people to my right and the people to my left are vomiting. Uh, you hear people get up and run to the bathrooms to go shit their brains out. Like, this is, it's chaos. An ayahuasca ceremony is absolute chaos between the shamans chanting, uh, the sounds outside, your own personal uh, journey going on, the noises around you of people shitting and puking and screaming and crying and yelling and laughing. It is pure chaos. Uh, but in that chaos, there is this, again, this feeling of community and that everybody's on the same journey and we're in this together. So I've been examined by Mother Ayahuasca up until this point. No physical difficulties. I don't even feel sick to my stomach. I'm actually chilling pretty good right now, laying on my back. Uh, and the next thing that comes to me is, uh, how do I describe this? I start to play with my dog tags. I have dog tags that are hanging around my neck, and one of them is my father's and uh, from his time in the service in like the 70s and then he actually got some made for me when I got sober and he has one of mine and I have one of his so we have one of each of ours uh, and we wear them all the time uh, and I pick that up and I'm playing with it in my hands because I'm still pretty aware at this time I'm still functioning like a human being I'm not off into some alternate universe but I'm definitely under the uh, the effects of some sort of psychedelic I'm uh, just not totally washed out and I'm, I'm grabbing I'm grabbing my my dad's dog tag and and he kind of pops into my vision in my head and it's it's my dad and I love him to death and the, and the feeling is very much I love this man but the feeling is very much like he didn't accomplish everything that he wanted to accomplish or maybe he was a little bit um I don't want to say weak weak's not the right term because my dad is a soldier he's you know he was he was an army ranger he's always been there for me he's always loved me but it was very much like uh he didn't uh excel too much and for those of you that maybe know me personally, I kind of have this obsession. Uh, it's a very egotistical sort of thing of like being better than other people and not just like I'm better than you, but like, hey, I want to I work harder and I want to accomplish a, a lot in my life uh, and I don't want to do the status quo. Uh, so that's what it, that was kind of saying to me is that like maybe your dad's always done the status quo, 
But it wasn't like disappointment. It was, I very much love my father. I'm glad to have had my father. Here this is. And then I picked up my own dog tag, and I had zero emotions whatsoever. That was fucking weird. I remember sitting there thinking, why, why don't, you know, I'm having this kind of uh, visual of my father and all these emotions come up, love and respect, but also a little bit of like, ah, oh, you never push the boundaries too hard. All of these really robust thoughts are coming to me, coming to my head when I'm thinking about my dad. But when I, I pick up my dog tag and I try to think about myself, nothing. No thoughts pour in. There's no... There's no, uh, I'm proud of you. There's no, you do a good job. There's no disappointment. There's just nothing. There's nothing. And I don't, I don't know what to make of that even to this day. Uh, other than I remember at the time saying, well, that's probably not good, right? <laughs> like you, you just had this emotional experience with your dad. And like, I might've even been tearing up a little bit because this is a crazy experience that's going on. They're singing, they're chanting. I'm picturing my dad in my head. Uh, I'm obviously under the influence of ayahuasca. There's, there's lines and, and wavy rainbows going by and all this good shit. And I pick up my dog tag and I feel nothing. I feel nothing. Um, and I remember saying to myself, why? Like, why do you feel nothing? Um, and then a little bit more time goes on and, and the ayahuasca kind of fades. Uh, it, was, it was a rather light dose uh, or amount the first time. So the ayahuasca fades uh, about three hours into the experience. And now there's about three hours left to go. Um, and the girl next to me, I think she was from Hungary, uh, is basically screaming she is getting attacked by spiders in her vision um and yelling out leave me alone spiders i don't want to deal with you leave me alone leave me alone leave me alone this is terrible this is terrible and that goes on for about three hours um that really does go on for about three hours uh until she finally sobers up and i remember thinking to myself wow you really threw me out of my trip like i was experiencing ayahuasca um, I was having, you know, minimal visions with my dad, but then in the corner of my ear, I could hear her crying and yelling about, um, spiders and really distracting sort of things. And I remember feeling anger. I remember feeling like, oh, I just came out here to do all of this. And I had to sit next to this woman that was yelling about spiders all night. Um, and that's just the honest truth. Um, her name was Katie and, uh, we finally wrap up. And what happens is when you wrap up, uh, obviously people start to come down from their trips a little bit, uh, and people start to get up and walk around and maybe get some fresh air outside, and that's exactly what started to happen uh, with us as well. So I went outside, and I sat down, and I was smoking some apacho, and this young kid, I forgot about this kid, this young kid comes out to me, come, comes out and sits with me, his name is Alex. Alex is actually from Las Vegas, and this was a really fucking weird thing for me, because I used to live in Las Vegas, and I've got... Las Vegas tattoos everywhere. Um, I didn't, well, maybe I did at the time. Uh, Las Vegas tattoos everywhere. Um, and it was just weird to see that here we are in the middle of the Amazonian jungle, drinking ayahuasca, going through this shared experience. And I've got a kid uh, from Las Vegas who's very much trying to find himself, was dealing with some suicidal stuff, was dealing with some uh, self-esteem issues. Uh, and his family basically sent them out here for a month to get his head straight because he thought that this would help. Um, I don't know if it actually did help or not. That's, that's for, for somebody to ask him. Uh, but I tell you what, he was probably in a really good place to do something positive about his issues. So he comes out and we're chatting and I, I had this really cool experience of meeting this young man from, uh, from Las Vegas. And we connected right away because I had also lived in Vegas. He knew the high school that I went to. He knew the neighborhood that I used to live in. Uh, so we formed a bit of a connection there. Uh, and then towards the end, uh, of the night, 
The chanting stops. Raul and Lydia get up. They walk out. And then everybody kind of gets up and recovers and heads into the, the recreational room, the kitchen area or the building, I should say, uh, to talk and to smoke. Some people go right to bed because it's an exhausting experience. Some people stay up and they drink uh, decaffeinated tea. Uh, some people just hang out and, and talk. So you can do a bunch of stuff. So this is this is about six or seven hours after the ayahuasca ceremony started. So I had this experience of um, getting inspected by Mother Ayahuasca. I had this experience of seeing my father and having some thoughts about them. And then I also had some experience of like, um, <laughs> I don't have any opinion of myself. Um, and that was it. That was round one. That was ceremonial one. And when you get up the next morning, you kind of have like this group therapy session, excuse me, where everybody goes over um, what they experienced in their ayahuasca trip. Now, you don't have to share, uh, but most people do share. So present in this is Stacy. You have Raul and Lydia, the shamans, Drew, and then everybody that actually drank ayahuasca uh, that previous night. And everybody shares, shares their experience. So I shared my experience. Well, I saw my father and I felt like I was getting... Uh, looked at by the plants and uh, you know I didn't have any opinion of myself which I thought weird and everybody's kind of going around sharing their experience and when that's done you have basically all day to relax and integrate because when you have some more stressful ayahuasca trips you need that day to come down like there's a lot of trauma that gets brought up like Katie the girl who sat next to me uh, that was looking and dealing with spiders all night crawling over her body body and like saying some really fucked up shit to her um, she didn't appear she didn't appear for the entire 24 hours until the next ceremony. She was basically in hiding, basically digesting everything that she saw. For what I remember, she was really beating herself up for, like, uh, having these experiences. And then she was also wrestling with, like, the fact that, like, I don't want to go back into ayahuasca. I don't want to do that again. And that's actually a really, really common thing that you hear. I've only done three trips, but a lot of people will go and they'll do more. And they'll have a really bad trip. And they say, I'm not fucking doing that again. But the mentality is very much you have to. You have to do that again, right? Like there's a reason that it got brought up to you and the work is not done. If you're still struggling with it, if you're still wrestling with this idea of um, this traumatic thing that happened to you, then you have to go back in. It might even be more important now than ever that we've, that we've awakened this beast in you. Um, so the mentality is very much when you have a bad trip, uh, you're going back in. Um, and there's also a saying that, that Drew would teach me or taught me while I was there, which was, uh, the good trips are good, right? The good trips are, are positive. They're beneficial. And then he would say the bad trips are good. They're positive. They're beneficial. They're just a nightmare. Um, and there's also kind of this concept in ayahuasca, uh, culture or the ayahuasca retreat center, at least of what I experienced was like, uh, the bad ones are even better. Uh, if you're having a bad trip, good, good, tough it out, tough it out, man, tough it out because this is, this is where the work gets done. It's not supposed to be a pretty experience. Um, so that was what they were telling Katie, Katie, the bad ones are good. You did a good job last night, right? I know it was miserable and terrifying and a horrible experience, but that's how it's supposed to be. And you got to go back in. So anyway, Katie doesn't pop up for the rest of the time for the next day. We, you sit around bullshitting. Um, everybody is there at these retreat centers to have a fantastic time. That, that's the wrong way to say it. Everybody is there at the retreat centers to uh, improve themselves, which leads to a feeling of community, which leads to a feeling of trust among individuals, uh, which is, again, why I'm so happy that I went to Dreamglade because it was really a, a fulfilling experience for me to be with all these people that are trying to improve themselves and are really, really just nice, genuine people. So... 
The next day, you do a little bit of yoga. You do some Wim Hof breathing exercises, which if nobody's done Wim Hof before, holy shit. If you want to trip balls, like you can do some, some Wim Hof breathing techniques as well. Um, so you hang around all day. Fast forward, ceremony two. Ceremony two is where the shit really hits the fan. Um, in ceremony two, I had probably the craziest psychedelic experience of my life. Ceremony two was when Stacy was drinking, right? First ceremony, one of her, his other workers was drinking, not Drew. Ceremony two, Stacy was drinking. Uh, so very much like the first ceremony, you sit in your circle about 7.30, everybody's bullshitting, laughing, having a good time. Um, Drew lights up the Palo Santo, starts to uh, purify or um, remove some of the bad energy from around the Maloka, starts to walk around the outside of the Maloka, uh, kill off that bad energy as well. Stacy's sitting there, the shamans are sitting there, it's go time, right? So the same thing happens all over again. Calls up Sean, calls up uh, somebody else. Hey, how you doing? How much are we drinking tonight? Yada, yada, yada. Finally gets to me. Uh, and when Stacy gets to me, he says, Jake, uh, we're going we're gonna to give you a little bit higher dose this time. Uh, so they gave me three quarters of a glass this time. Um, so I drink that down, and I will tell you guys, this is one of the worst tastes that I've ever had in my life. It, is, it tastes so different from the stale raisin McCafe that I had the previous time. They weren't joking. When they say it gets worse every time, oh my God, it was vile. It's disgusting. It makes you want to puke right there. So again, I, I, I shoot that down, slam it to the back of my throat like I was shooting Wild Turkey 101, uh, go back to my, my cot or my, my mattress, light up a mapacho right away and just start to suck down as much mapacho smoke as possible to settle my stomach and to get that shit off of my taste buds. It's, it's foul, man. So anyway, lights go off again. Everybody's dosed. I'm dosed. I'm chain-smoking mapachos. And in the back, you start to hear, you know, it starts. It's pitch black. You're in the middle of the Amazon jungle. In this recording, you can hear the, the, the insects outside. You can hear the noises outside. You've just ingested the most powerful psychedelic. Uh, dimethyltryptamine, DMT. You're being guided by shamans practicing an ancient form of plant medicine. You're surrounded by people who are going through a shared, difficult, oftentimes traumatic experience, and you're nervous. At this time, at this time, those rainbows start to come again, right? 25, 30 minutes in, those multicolored kind of wavy lines start to impede my vision again. Although this time, they're getting stronger, and they're getting stronger, and stronger, and stronger, and stronger. They are taking over me. This is not the same trip that I had the first time. This is not an introduction to ayahuasca. This is ayahuasca, and it made it very clear from the start of this journey 
that this was going to be a strong, deep experience. So these lines start to get stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. And my breath starts to get more labored and labored and labored. And I can feel myself working up into an anxiety because I don't know if you've ever taken mushrooms before or like a high dose of mushrooms. Uh, but it reminded me of the feeling of, oh my God, I may have taken too much. There's that anxious layer that comes over you. Uh, that engulfs you and says, oh my God, what have I done? And that was very much the mentality as these lines are getting stronger. So I lay down. I lay down onto my right side and I turn towards Raul, who is singing at the time. And he's, I'm, I'm holding on to his chance. I'm holding on to Raul's Icaros. And the message that Stacy gave me day one plays back in my head. Jake, breathe. Jake, let go. Jake, don't try to understand this. Jake, breathe. Jake, let go. And I just kept, that was my mantra over and over and over as I started to get wrapped up into this spirit world. I'll pause real quick. Into this spirit world. And I don't know the exact moment that I got transported. But the next thing that I remember, and this is two years later, I am sitting in some sort of interdimensional waiting room. I can't describe this waiting room to you. Uh, it's not a room, I should say. It is a, uh, I don't fucking know. It's a universe. It is a, a, a holding area that I'm in. And around it are, are, are waves of colors. And uh, geo geometric patterns and figures and shapes and feelings. I'm looking at feelings. Does that fucking make sense? No, but I'm looking at feelings and I'm experiencing the feelings and I'm hearing the feelings. Uh, and I could see Raul and Lydia in this interdimensional or universal waiting room with me. I could physically see them, although it wasn't in their human form. It was their spirit form. They were in there with me. And this is where I understood and why I sound like a crazy guy that talks about the importance of having shamans with you that you trust. Because these motherfuckers were in this this galaxy, universe, empty space, you waiting room with me. They were there somehow, man. I don't fucking know how, but they were there. And in order to stay sane... I was holding on to Raul's chance and Icaro's as strongly as possible. They were my, my vehicle through this sort of waiting room. Um, so I'm in this, this waiting room of colors and patterns and ge ge geometry and uh, emotions and feelings and images. And I'm just, I'm waiting. And the idea of... Uh, being on a roller coaster before it shoots off is very much the feeling. Like there's a roller coaster that I remember from my childhood, which is you go from a dead stop and it shoots you out like zero to 60 in like 1.5 seconds or something like that. That was the feeling I had that, hey, man, this is only the beginning, right? You're already overwhelmed. Uh, you're already breathing really, really heavily. You're already having to rely on your mantras. You're already having to, to hold on to Raul and Lydia's Icaros. 
Um, and this is just the beginning. And that added another layer of anxiety on top of it. But to tell you the truth, um, I was pretty proud of myself at this time because I kept saying what Stacy had told me. And to tell you the truth, thank God Stacy sat us down that first ceremony before we started and said, hey, here's three rules of the road for you. Because if he didn't, I'd have to rely on my experience from psychedelic, which I hadn't done in five years. Um, there was a feeling that I was back in a familiar space and that space is like the, uh, familiarity with the unfamiliar is the best way I can describe it because it's not this, it's not a place that I've been to before, but it's an, it's a mindset that I've been to before. If that makes sense. I was familiar with, oh yeah, we're going to see some crazy shit here and that's okay. Um, but Stacy's talk the first night, uh, really, really helped me kind of cement myself, uh, to some rules of the road while I tapped into my past psychedelic self and experiences. So again, the eco rows are going on. I'm in this intergalactic interstellar waiting room. Um, you know, it, it is almost like the, the waiting room or the not waiting room, but when Matthew McConaughey in interstellar goes into the black hole, he goes into the, what do they call that? The, um, Fuck, what do they call that when you go into the black hole? It'll come to me later on. But when he's in that and he's like communicating with his daughter through the bookshelves, um, that's kind of what it felt like, but not the same. And Raul and Lydia were there with me as well. Um, I'm going to read a passage from this ceremony to see how well I remember that. These are my actual words that I wrote in bed the night after this ceremony. Ceremony two, I said three-fourths cup administered by Stacy. And to tell you the truth, I haven't, I haven't read this in, since I've left the jungle. Three-fourths cup administered by Stacy. All right, I got that point wrong. I was very nervous this, this ceremony. My allergies and throat were acting up uh, from all of the smoking in the jungle. I forgot about that. So I said that mapacho doesn't really affect your um, respiratory system or your throat. Um, and, and I still believe that to be true, but I think I also had a shitload of allergies going on and that mixed with the mapacho spoke. Uh, it stuffed up my nose and it made it hard to talk and I had a really raspy voice. Um, so I was nervous because I also suffer from asthma that I couldn't really breathe, right? My nose was really fucking stuffed up. Uh, so I was nervous that my ayahuasca ceremony was going to be hindered by the fact that I couldn't breathe. And I was wondering, well, what happens if I panic and I can't breathe? Am I, am I going to die? So that was all making me nervous. I remember that. Um, I was afraid that if I went too deep, I would not be able to breathe enough. Like I just said, simply put, that was not the case. I think this dose started to take effect around the 30 minute mark. I'm not quite sure when it truly started, but it came on hard. My first memory is Lydia singing. There seemed to be a white light of energy being admitted through her. Oh, yeah. As these, as these uh, rainbows were kind of coming, I do remember uh, looking at her and feeling that this is the time to hold on. So I may have skipped a step in there, right? Because I, I, I talked about holding on to the Icaros when I was in this, this waiting room. But I think I was almost led there or, you know, what it seems like in past is I remember I was nervous and it started to come on hard and, and Lydia was singing and there was this white light. And I only remember that because I wrote it down, thank God. Uh, but I do remember holding on to that very much in the way that I held on to Raul's Icaros when I was in the waiting room. Man, that's cool. I haven't read that in a while. Um, my first Lydia is remember singing. There shouldn't be a white light of energy being admitted through her. It was pure and motherly. It was pure and motherly, I said. Um, 
it was very loving. It was very trustworthy. There was nothing uh, off-putting about it. A lot of times when you do psychedelics, you get to see people's auras around them. Um, and she had a white light, a white light that I felt confident holding on to. It was pure and motherly, I said. I instantly knew that I had to turn towards her and absorb as much as possible. So this is where I turn to my right-hand side, face right will and Lydia, and start to absorb as much of this, this positive and pure and motherly energy as possible. From there, from there, things began to get very intense. Raul started back up. Okay, so we go from from Lydia drawing me in to Raul now singing his Icaros. I'll put it on in the background. And I'm going to just turn it down a bit. How about that? From there, things began to get very intense. Raul started back up and seemed to sing forever at this time. Forever. He, <laughs> I don't know how long this man was singing or if I blacked out or what, but he was singing for a very, very long time or at least what seemed long in my trip. Okay, I'm going to pause Raul again. Right, so Raul started back up. I can only... Oh, uh, to sing forever this time. I fell deeper, deeper into what I can only describe as a maze or a labyrinth, but even that does not describe it accurately. It was existential, but at the same time, very normal. I entered into a labyrinth. I'm thinking back, so I'm pausing a little bit. I think that I entered this labyrinth before I got to this waiting room. I really do. Because I, I, I do remember the, a labyrinth and a maze. And I remember thinking to myself, this is my brain. I remember thinking and seeing this and breathing heavy and, and tripping my balls out and saying, right now, uh, I don't know what this is, but it seems like I'm investigating every cavern of my brain. Every uh, pathway or room that I could possibly go through in my own subconscious or personality or brain I'm going through right now. And I've got no idea where I'm going, why I'm going there, but I'm being forced to experience this. It was a labyrinth. And like I said, or like I wrote, it did feel very existential. It felt like this is something not of this world that nobody else is allowed to do under normal circumstances, that I'm here for a very specific reason and that I'm very lucky to be here. That's what it felt like. That's what it felt like. Okay? What else did I write? This continued on for a while. I had my first oh shit moment. I was, oh yeah, I'm not, I won't even read the next line. I think I know what the next line is. I had my first oh shit moment of, I am never going to come back from this. This is how I'm going to be for the rest of my life. I will be trapped in my own brain um, for the rest of my life. It was a, a scary moment, a scary moment. And what I did is I just continued to hold on to those Icaros. I continued to let Raul and Lydia guide me through the situation. But I do remember, oh, fuck. I, I, I remember sitting there on my left-hand side and saying, oh, shit, what did I do? What did I just do? And what I'm talking about is I'm probably never going to come out of this. Um, and that's a scary thing to do when you're in a psychedelic trip. I had my first little shipment. Oh, man, how long would I like? How long would this last? Would it be this strong? The whole time I said, I truly had to remember, breathe, feel it, turn off your inclinations. The message I got from this peak was surrender. 
Be willing to go wherever your mind wants to take you. Because sometimes you don't have a choice. I said, the message I got was be willing to go wherever your mind wants to take you because sometimes you don't have a choice. I had to disengage. I had to say, all right, I'm going deep. I don't care what happens. This is what surrender is all about. This is why we came out here for these difficult trips. You have to let go because the, the harder that you squeeze onto reality and the harder that you try to hang on to your sanity, um, the more it's going to throw you for a loop. So Stacy's message of turn off and stop trying to understand shit, that's what this kind of meant, right? Turn off, stop trying to figure it out, surrender, and let go. Uh, time seemed as if it were going super slow. I mean, it wasn't even time, really. We were floating in some weird space, which a chain of events was only tied to the Icaros coming from Raul and Lydia. The only uh, connection to the real world was the, uh, the physical sound that I could hear coming from Raul and Lydia. Time ceased to exist. I was off in this labyrinth or this waiting room. I remember I would totally stop breathing sometimes and then remember to take a giant inhale. That's right. As I'm going through this, uh, there are times when I am so overwhelmed and so deep into this experience, so deep into my trip, so deep into the visuals of what I see, which I can only describe as like a labyrinth or a waiting room of colors and feelings and emotions and spirits and everything like that, that I stop breathing. Like, not stop breathing to the point where I'd forget to breathe, but, yeah, I, I'd forget to breathe, but not forever. Because I remember sometimes I'd go, <gasps> like, I'd be so overwhelmed and focused on what was going on that I would literally not breathe until my body reminded me to breathe. And I think that was the only time that I remembered I had a body, is when that I, I is like when I'd have to gasp for that air. So I said I would take a giant inhale. That was really the only way to remember that I had a body. There it is. At one point, the visions got so strong that it didn't matter if my eyes were open or closed. It was blinding. I remember laying on my back, and I don't, time doesn't matter at this point, right? I'm in this labyrinth. I'm going deep. I'm holding on to the Ikairos. Um, I am just trying to survive at this point. That's the best way I can describe it. And I remember opening my eyes and being, it was white. It was a whiteout. Like if you were in the middle of Antarctica on a summer day and the sun was reflecting off the snow and it blinded you. It was that bright. It was a bright white light that eyes closed, eyes opened. It didn't matter. That's all I saw. That's all I experienced. I was no longer in the Maloka. I was in this room of white light. That's all I had around me. Waves and geo geometric rainbows were everywhere. Eventually, my peak wore off and started the next chapter of this ceremony. So I think what I'm going to describe here, or what I intended to describe when I wrote this, was there seemed to be very different um, points in this ceremony that led to very different lessons. Uh, the first of which was purely visual, and it was very, very overwhelming. Very overwhelming from a visual perspective, and I panicked. Uh, and I had to remember to breathe, and I saw a bunch of visuals, and I was in the unknown. That was the first part, was the visual part. The second part, I don't quite remember as well, so I'm going to read. Once my peak wore off, it started the next chapter of the ceremony. So this is maybe two hours into it, two and a half hours into the ceremony. This was a more cerebral and emotional chapter. 
I actually had time to think and investigate my emotions. I remember looking at some very difficult things. Okay, I'm going to put my book down right now or my, my diary down and describe kind of what happened here now. I remember this a little bit. I remember my peak wore off and people started to come to me. Uh, the first person that came to me was my ex-girlfriend. I think that I had uh, struggled getting over. Uh, I don't want to say getting over her. I want to say getting over the experience. It was kind of a traumatic breakup. So this is why I booked the trip in the first place. And she came to me first. And I looked at her and she looked at me. And I had this very um, emotional sadness. I remember being sad. I remember saying, that is so sad how that happened, how we, how we decided to end it and the events that led up to it and the outcome to that. That is so sad because we don't talk anymore. And, you know, you go from, you know, living with somebody to no longer talking anymore. And I remember dealing with that in my ayahuasca trip and just thinking, that is so sad. And it wasn't, it wasn't Jake, you're sad. It was a third person. Like if somebody had come in and, and experienced that and watched it and had been bipartisan and not taken sides throughout that entire experiment, like if experience, somebody would come in and say, yeah, that was really sad. Like that sucks for both of them. Like terrible. Like I, you know, it's really hard to see. That's what it felt like. So, so this, this person is looking at me and I'm looking at her and she waves goodbye to me and I wave goodbye to her and she gets absorbed, taken away, gone. And that sadness goes away. That sadness disappeared. Really, really weird. I experienced it. She waved at me. I waved at her, and the, the sadness disappeared. The next person to come up, let's see. Um, the next person to come was another ex-girlfriend. Can you see a pattern here? Uh, was another ex-girlfriend that I had done kind of dirty. Uh, and the same sort of thing happened, which was, damn, you could have acted better there. Damn, uh, that's really sad for her, and she did not deserve that. Uh, feel bad about this. And it wasn't feel sad about this. It was, I want you to feel bad about this. Ayahuasca was making me feel bad. It was saying, feel what you made her feel, which was a very um, cruel sort of sadness of the world isn't fair. The world isn't fair kind of sadness. And then the same thing happened. She waved at me and I waved at her and whoosh, she was whisked away. And I'm looking back in my book for who came next. Las Vegas came into my head. I used to live in Las Vegas. I have really, really negative memories of Las Vegas. Uh, my parents split up in Las Vegas. Um, I had a really depressing time in Las Vegas when I moved there with my family. It was really, really tough. So I had these negative emotions and Las Vegas came in. And I felt the emotions of Las Vegas. And I felt what it was like to be back 15 years old uh, in that house with my mom and my dad um, and going to school out there. And I, and I had to experience that again. And it was really, really difficult. And this was more of a sad feeling. A sad feeling and an accepting feeling from what I remember. And Las Vegas waved to, me, waved to me, as weird as that sounds. And I waved to Las Vegas and it went on. My dad then came in. And I remember having this emotions of my dad, of I love my dad very much, and he's, he's a protector, uh, and I'm very, very thankful to have him. And he waved at me, and I waved at him, and whoosh, he went by. The same thing happened with my mom. Uh, and my mom was going through some very, very difficult stuff. 
Um, and it was very much an emotional experience with my mother of like, damn, this is sad too. Damn. Like, I hope she, she gets the help that she needs. And I, I, I hope that, you know, she comes out of this okay. And, um, I want her to be okay, but I can't focus too heavily on it. And that's another sad story too. That's what it kept telling me. And she'd wave at me and I'd wave at her and whoosh, she'd be gone. Uh, and then I came in. I came in. I looked at myself. Jake came into the screen, and I looked at myself, and myself looked at me, as weird of a statement as that is. Um, and I think I need to read the next little piece here. Um, I came, except this time it was like I was aware that I am not my thoughts. It did not. I did not obsess like I normally do. They would come, and I would be very honest about my feelings. And then say, okay, goodbye, what else is there? This went on for some time. So basically I just described what I was telling you about. And I'll, and I'll read it again. Um, I was aware that I am not my thoughts. When, when I read that and, and go to my description of what I just said of uh, it was like a third person had come in. That's what I mean is that like my thoughts were that third person. And I was disconnected from that third person. I was not the one that had to break all of this shit down. I was not the one uh, that had to live with this for the rest of my life. These were feelings and emotions, and they didn't define me. And I think that's what I like. The ayahuasca was telling me they'd wave, and I would wave, and those thoughts and emotions were gone, and it was on to the next one. It was very much feel it, experience it, and then realize that like this is part of the human condition, uh, and it doesn't control you, and you can't obsess over over thoughts and emotions. And all of this bullshit, you have to let it go. You have to wave goodbye when it's done teaching you something. Yeah, that's that. That's kind of the feeling that I remember. They would come. I would be very honest about my feelings. And then I would say, okay, goodbye. What else is there? This went on for some time. I would regularly think to myself. Oh, this is funny. I would regularly think to myself, I am Liddy as a titty. Um, and before we get on to what that actually means, I want to talk about when myself came in, um, I looked at myself and I felt positive emotion. I felt very proud of myself. I felt, I felt for the first time in a long time, I remember saying, Jake, I'm very proud of you. I'm proud of the person that you've become. I'm proud of the sacrifices you've made to create a better life for yourself. I'm proud of the work that you've done. I'm proud of you for, for for dealing with some of the stuff that you've dealt with. I'm proud of you for having the, the, the guts to come out here. I remember just saying I'm proud. And I didn't, I never do that before. Um, I kind of hinted at it earlier in this podcast that I am very, I can be very egotistical. I can be very, I want to be better. I want to win. I'm very competitive. Um, and that nature leads me to never really congratulate myself or to never really say, uh, good job, self. It's always more more. Okay, you, you achieve that. What's the next step? How do you keep moving? Uh, and this ayahuasca trip was really my first time to slow down and to actually thank myself. Uh, I shouldn't say thank myself. To, to, to say that I'm proud of myself. That was fucking powerful. That was powerful to say, Jake, I'm proud of you. And mean it. And mean it. That was really, really cool. So after I came... Things started to uh, change 
a little bit. And I'm going to keep reading after I kind of describe what I remember. What I remember is based on the Lydia's the titty statement is um, I had done a lot of the emotional and mental work of that ceremony. I had done a lot of the hardcore visual peaking work of that ceremony. And now it was almost like I could relax a little bit and enjoy the goofiness that was ayahuasca. Um, because again, in the background, you hear puking and you hear shitting and you hear farting and you hear crying and you hear yelling. And I remember, you know, we're about four or five hours in at this time and just being high, just being really, really high and kind of rolling around and feeling my body and laughing and giggling um, and finding all of this really, really funny and saying to myself, I'm Lydia's the titty, yo. I don't know if you guys know Daddy Longneck, the meme, um, kind of a creepy guy from, not Vine, it must be Instagram, but Daddy Longneck would see, I'm Lydia's a titty. And that kept coming to me and I thought that was, that was really, really funny. Um, okay. Uh, I'm Lydia as a titty and I would tell myself holy shit I just went fucking deep it was like I was conscious but unable to really come back down uh, but that was okay the moment of reconciliation if you will is when I was forced to take a leak myself a piss when I was forced to have to go pee myself and there's a bathroom probably about uh, 30 meters outside of the Maloka I remember being proud of who I am like I said and what I have done, I remember being so grateful for my sobriety. Along, along the trip, it would take me to a really painful places in my past. Most notably, a spot where I would... Oh, shoot. I'm not going to say this. Um, but as this was going on, it was, it was showing me all these people and it was taking me to really painful places. Um, and it was taking me to a spot in my past where I used to do some dirty work where I actually used to do some illegal activities. Um, I won't say what they were, but it was in the pursuit of um, my addiction to substances, basically. Wow, I, don't, I, I didn't remember that. Um, and I, would feel, I remember feeling very sorry for it. Um, very, very sorry for that and having to deal with those emotions, much like I did with the, with the ex-girlfriends of my mother and myself and my father um, and my past in Las Vegas. Same sort of concept. Um, ultimately, the second half of the journey taught me self-love. I never, ever truly said that I'm proud of myself. I never said I love the man that I've become, but I'm happy I do. Um, and that was a theme of the trip. Uh, and after those emotions were experienced, I just became high. Basically, and I remember going out and sitting uh, on the patio with Stacy and telling him, Stacy, man, you have a beautiful place here. And, and Stacy had done uh, ayahuasca that night as well. And um, just being really, really thankful and proud and happy. Um, and it was a great experience. Uh, but I tripped balls and I had to hold on tight and I had to, to, to look at some very difficult things and learn some difficult lessons. Uh, but you come out of it six hours later, seven hours later, very, very thankful, or at least I did for this specific trip. Um, I'm going to stop there. I'm going to stop there. Maybe I'll do my last ceremony um, tomorrow or, or in the upcoming week or so, because the last ceremony is radically different from what I just experienced. Um, and also, now that I'm talking about it, I kind of want to process what I just reread from that diary. But um, we'll do this again. We're going to break. Uh, thank you for listening. Um, I will post this. It is a two hour podcast. Um, I hope you got something out of it. 
Um, I'm going to do do the the last one uh, sometime this week where I talk about the remaining ceremony because that was a really really tough one for me. Um, but with that, I'm going to stop the recording and and I'll edit this down and and I'll post it for the first time in a while. All right, guys, cheers. Mm-hmm.